0: Hi, I'm Biz. I'm a working parent with a kid and a teen. It's been 10 years since the show began and a lot has changed, on the show and in the world. But by elevating the voices of others, we have learned we are not alone and we are doing a good job. This is still a show about life after giving life. This is One Bad Mother. This week on One Bad Mother, the house is trashed but the bones are good. I talk with poet and author Maggie Smith about rebuilding self-identity and her new memoir, You Could Make This Place Beautiful. Plus, biz is in purgatory. Woo! Well, this is a quick check-in, Biz. It
1: finally happened. My son pooped (gasps) in the bathtub. And not only did he poop in the bathtub, my daughter was in the bathtub with him. We still... Let them uh, bathe together uh, yeah. because they are three and a half and one and a half. And it was, yeah. sure, it was more than I yeah. think I was expecting. However, I was yeah. able to respond <laughs> swiftly and get my daughter out of the bathtub and not overreact. Whereas my <laughs> husband was extremely um, upset and grossed out, maybe because he knew he was going to have to be the one to clean it. But I like to think that this show warned me that that would be a reality yes. one day, and
2: yeah. it happened.
1: But you yes. know what? We all still got ready, and it nice for our Easter dinner and celebration, so <laughs> it doesn't matter. So we're all still doing a good job. Thanks. Bye.
0: Oh, it's an Easter miracle. I don't, I mean, I I don't know how to respond. Part of me wants to go, one of us, one of us, goobble gobble, one of us. Or another part wants to say, if one bad mother has provided one thing for listeners over the years, it's the expectation of poop in the tub. And I also, it. just, I got my daughter out. You know, like the one-year-old still in there, still floating around, still making that. I actually think there's not a cleaner place to do it, really. I mean, that is, of all the options of where a child could poop, I would rather deal with poop in the tub any day than a back explosion on an airplane, okay? I feel like I have purpose as a host of One Bad Mother now, and so you... <laughs> Your husband. Your husband's like, this is really gross. You are doing a very good job. This is such a normal thing. You got everybody clean. And like I said, you, you went out to Easter dinner. I mean, you know, <laughs> the other option is to just say, bug it. <laughs> We're calling this off for the day. We're all done. We're going to a hotel to shower there. I think you are remarkable, and I appreciate that check-in because I feel like maybe monthly we should be reminding people that maybe that should be the new like t-shirt or the sticker next year. You know, one bad mother, there will be poop in your tub. <laughs> you are doing a great job. Uh, how am I? I gotta tell you, I, I I'm not sure if you're familiar with the concept of purgatory in the Catholic faith, I grew up hearing about purgatory, this, this place between hell and heaven, and it's sort of like, the best way I remember the description is that it's like a little halfway point where you're not, you're not quite in hell, uh, but you're not quite ready for heaven, and I just remember as part of church, my mother telling me to pray for the lost souls of purgatory. Well, I feel that is where I am now. And I want to preface this by saying I will be talking about my mother and I will be talking about impending death. And if you would like to skip ahead, go ahead and skip ahead two, three minutes, and then you'll probably come to at an ad. And then it'll be on to our great interview. Everyone knows that my mother was diagnosed with a terminal cancer, rare terminal cancer, around Thanksgiving. And the process of decline has been interesting. And uh, it, <laughs> it's had its moments of total uh, surprise. I, I, it's hard not to compare it sometimes to a newborn in your house or waiting to say, is this a sign that I'm about to give birth? You know, and she's been in hospice and we have been through, uh, I, I, I have lost count of the times that we have been told this is it. And then it's definitely not it. And we are definitely kind of back up and back to responsiveness. She currently has not eaten in 18 days. And has not had anything to drink in a week. Now, my standard sort of response to this when I tell people is, if we're buried in an earthquake, keep digging for our family. Because we clearly, we clearly will go for a while. And she's now not responsive, She can't speak, she's pretty much asleep all the time. But her blood pressure is still pretty good and her breathing is still pretty good. And like her oxygen levels are pretty good. I mean, they go up and they go down, they go up and they go down. And we have now been in this place for a number of weeks where I am, look, I am thankful for every moment I get to have with my mother, but I am no longer having moments with my mother. She is she is ready to go. We are ready for her to go. But she is continuing to hang on. And I will tell you that that is fucking with me. It makes me be like, maybe we shouldn't have done certain medications. Maybe we shouldn't have done this. Maybe she's still fighting. Maybe she, you know, like, how have I fucked this up? I feel very bad for my father, who's there with a house full of healthcare workers. It, it just... It is like a extended waiting period. And it's making it difficult to like, how do you, how does one prepare for grief? Not that you can prepare for grief, but how does one prepare for grief when the onset of that grief is just being extended to on and on like how do I tell my kids as far as my kids know grandmama was going and now she's still not going and and we're all just sort of stuck in this place of praying for her to know that she can go and also a place of well what do we do yeah I mean there's no point just sitting here all day because nothing's changing I I, I I don't know, it's just very fucked up, and I'm very confused and I'm very, very tired, and I'm very sad for my mom who um would hate this and um I'm sad for my dad, who just is ready to take the next steps to move on. And it's all fucked up because everybody keeps telling me, you know, enjoy this extra time. Enjoy. <laughs> what? You know, I play music for her. I talk to her. I tell her about the kids. I tell her about Easter. I tell her about things. I, I assume she can still hear me. I, I don't know, guys. The The point is, it is such a, like, numb and sad and, like, awful purgatory that I find myself in, you know, not really able to make decisions or move forward or make plans. And I will say the thing that triggers my sadness is, is currently, is these thoughts about her life as a person, as a self, right? And that makes me reflect on my life as a person And a self. And I know that that sort of reflection changes, and we all have these moments of how did we get here, and is this where I want to be? And I don't know, it just timed out really well with this wonderful conversation that I got to have with the poet Maggie Smith, whose poetry and whose new memoir I found so touching and yet biting at the same time, which is my perfect combination. So uh, thank you for everybody who's just reached out to show their support. I see you, I see me, I see my dad, I see my sister, I see all these amazing caregivers uh, that we have had the absolute honor to have care for my mom as well as for us stick around i needed this talk with maggie and i hope you find some joy in it as well we'll be right back one bad mother is supported in part by bombas 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 they make getting active, more comfortable with socks that support your sport, (laughs) breathable t-shirts that keep you from overheating, and underwear made to move with you. And if you were just not in the mood to be active, these are still very comfortable in doing as little as possible. This house is built on Bomba's socks. In fact, Stefan just ordered an entire slew of Bomba's socks. Besides being comfortable and lasting forever, one of the things I love the most about Bombas is that Bombas donates one of every item you buy to someone experiencing homelessness. Plus, Bombas has the happiness guarantee, meaning you're covered for life. Go to Bombas.com badmother and use code badmother for 20% off your first purchase. Are you tired of
1: being picked on for only wanting to talk about your cat at parties? Do you feel as though your friends don't understand the depth of love you have for your guinea pig? When you look around a room of people, do you wonder if they know sloths only have to eat one leaf a month? Have you ever dumped someone for saying they're just not an animal person? Us too. She's Alexis B. Preston. She's Ella McLeod. And we host Comfort Creatures, the show where you can't talk about your pets too much. Animal trivia is our love language and dragons are just as real as dinosaurs. Tune in to Comfort Creatures every Thursday
2: on Maximum Fun.
3: Please take a moment to remember, if you're friends of the hosts of One Bad Mother,
0: you should assume that when we talk about other moms, we're talking about you. If you are married to the host of One Bad Mother, we definitely are talking about you. Nothing we say
3: constitutes professional parenting advice.
0: Ms. and Teresa's children are brilliant, lovely, and exceedingly extraordinary. Nothing said on this podcast about them implies otherwise. Everyone, this week, I am speaking with Maggie Smith, who is the author of the national bestsellers, Golden Rod and Keep Moving, Notes on Loss, Creativity and Change, as well as Good Bones, named one of the best five poetry books of 2017 by the Washington Post and winner of the 2018 Independent Publisher Book Awards Gold Medal in Poetry. She also wrote The Well Speaks of Its Own Poison, which was a winner of the 2012 Dorset Prize and the 2016 Independent Publisher Book Awards Gold Medal in Poetry, and Lamp of the Body, winner of the 2003 Benjamin Saltman Award. Her next book, which is a memoir, You Could Make This Place Beautiful, will be published on April 11th this year, If you haven't figured it out, Maggie Smith is a poet. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us, Maggie. Oh my gosh, thanks
3: for having me.
0: I am very excited to get into your new book. But I want to start with what we ask our guest, which is who lives in your house.
3: I live in my house, uh, which I feel like I should say because every time I'm talking to my therapist about all the people I have to take care of, she says, don't forget yourself, you live in the house too. So I live in my house, 46-year-old me, and I live here with my daughter, (laughs) Violet, who's 14, and my son, Rhett, who is 10, And our dog, Phoebe, who is almost nine. She's a Boston Terrier and we call her the Marble Rye because that's what she looks like when she curls up in a little ball.
0: (laughs) I have a 13-year-old and a nine-year-old. Ah, you're a year behind me. Yeah, I'm a year behind. Gender be damned, depending on the day with my children. So I just refer to them as the children. Yes. So I, I just want you to know that I see you. And yet you look, you, everybody, she's so clean looking. I don't know. Like she looks nice. There's like a shower was maybe had. I don't know. Or maybe she just has like one room that she has figured out how to keep hers. Or it's all fake on the other side of the camera. I don't know. But it's a mirage. It's a mirage. It's a good day. What a great background you have. <laughs> all right. I want to get in. I just want to jump right into the book. Your new book is a memoir, which is different from your prior books, which were poetry books. It's titled You Could Make This Place Beautiful. I have seriously dog-eared your new book. I There are so many pages I have folded, and... It explores the disintegration of your marriage and your renewed sense of possibility. And those are all words that are very blurby, everyone. Don't worry. We're going to get through that. But you'd already looked at some of these things that you're exploring in the memoir in your poetry. So what led you to addressing these experiences in a memoir form? And were there challenges in shifting from poetry to this, like what? What did you need to explore more with this book? Tell me, tell me everything. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> there's
3: only so much you can do within a poem, or at least within one of my poems. My poems tend to be very short. Yes. I am a whittler, so if I come up with an idea and I revise and revise and revise, which is my process. Somewhere between version one and version 15 or version 20 or whenever I call it done, it might actually not double in size. It may be cut in half because Mm -hmm. my writing process is one of of like elimination. So like what is essential here? What does the reader need to know? What can I leave off? or out so I'm not spoon-feeding them something. You know, like I really want some of the yeah. experience to be the reader's experience, like, oh, this person handed me this thing and now I have to figure out sort of what it means and what to do with it rather than being sort of walked through something. Yeah. But at the same time when I enter a piece of writing, I'm always thinking what's the best form, and I'm hoping it will be a poem. Like I uh, Full disclosure, I hope that every idea I have wants to be a poem and will agree to be a poem. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them do. They have really worked with me through the years. A lot of my ideas agree to be poems and some of them don't. And it mostly comes down to real estate. Like I can't do a lot of storytelling and narrative work and like oh but another and another thing this reminds me of the time when like my poems tend to be fairly concise and I can't stretch too much inside them so with this project I knew I really wanted to sort of reckon with the past and kind of unpack my adult life in a way that would help me make sense of it like what you know it's like the old the old David Byrne how did I get here (laughs) Um, Yes. Same as it ever was. Same as it ever was. Maggie, same as it ever was. This is not my beautiful house. Uh, Um, This is not my
0: beautiful life. I know. I'm right there. What is this?
3: And so (laughs) I couldn't do it in poems. I just, I couldn't do the kind of like really reckoning, digging deep, making connections between parts of my life, contextualizing things um, it's a poetic book. like I, I think it will not surprise someone yeah. who reads this that the the person is primarily a poet, but I just needed more room. I needed more room.
0: Yeah. The unpacking, I think is a great description. There in the book, you talk about our lives being like nesting dolls, mm-hmm. which I thought was such a great way to visualize it. Your younger self is inside the slightly older, inside the and you know, right now. And they're all, you're carrying them around with you everywhere you go. And that's just like one of the ways you approach this format-wise that I really, I really found so impactful and making it more enticing uh, to read you, like you said, the layout isn't traditional, like there are these repetitions throughout it, like a note on foreshadowing, these unanswerable questions, the play. And even within that, there are, there is literally formatting changes, italics. Talk to me about the voices that you use to help explore these different, these different segments that it feels like a train of thought. As opposed to like, like a real person's train of thought, which is not one continuous thought, because that's not how that is. So talk to me about that. I love that you got
3: that. I mean, it's, it's true. Like the way that we think doesn't look like the timeline in a history textbook. That's not yeah. how we remember things. It's not how we process things. It's much more sort of like a, a constellation burst of like this then pings off of this, which reminds you of this, yeah. which leads you backwards in time, which shoots you over to this. Oh, and then that song. And then remember that one time with the one, the guy who said the thing, which reminds me of the thing. You know, it. there is a forward moving sort of narrative spine in the book, yeah. but then sort of living around it or, or flowing around and through it are these other strands. And it seemed important to me to sort of write, if I'm writing memoir, which is about memory, I wanted to write it the way memory actually works, not the way yeah. that would seem convenient. And I also wanted to come up with a form for the book that felt as psychologically true, as possible. And so, you know, grief doesn't happen in a straight line. Grief, I think, happens in waves. And rumination, or sort of like obsessively thinking about something and trying to figure (laughs) out something doesn't happen in a straight line. We'd get more sleep if it happened in a straight line. I think that happens kind of in a spiral, which is like you're moving in a circle, but forward at the same time, like a corkscrew. (laughs) And so I wanted to kind of like build the structure of the book in a way that honored what the
0: experience
3: felt like, not just
0: to tell about the experience. And I think that is why I love this book as much as I do, because it feels like a process and what is not remarkable. What I enjoyed was, you know, I am not going through the same loss, the same big earthquake game changer that you went through, but I am going through, just like I think anybody who suddenly has kids in their house or has had kids in their house for a very long time, these larger questions of roles. And I feel like my brain is working along with yours, that corkscrew mm. idea. And and you, you do read other books and think, well, look how neat that is. A- and it's not neat, not even a little bit. I want to jump to one of the things that resonated, the, and a lot resonated, but one of the things that I think really resonated was this self-reflection on the roles you saw yourself playing throughout your life. We have definitely discussed that idea on the show for 10 years. It's pretty much why this show exists because I could not correlate who I was prior to having kids in my house to uh, mm. mother. I mean, like, I still wrestle with, am I mother? What does that even mean? And self and artist, and right? And how each of these roles carry such uniquely different weight. You use the example of a, of a play, this, mm-hmm. this theme of a play throughout it. And one, you define your character, and I, I have to just read a line that I loved so much. You're in it. The man's wife finds a postcard that references the pine cone. I'm just generically setting this up. You're describing the first, or actually before the play begins, and you refer to her as the wife yourself as the wife, this character. In fact, no one knows what to do with the character who is called the wife at the beginning of the play. But by the middle of the play, she's no longer a wife. What should we call her character? The snoop, the finder. The finder is softer, less judgmental. But I I (laughs) loved this idea of, yeah, no one cares about the character of the wife. I mean, it's been a longstanding joke like, I remember when I used to do sketch comedy, you'd get sketches, you'd read other people's sketches, and like every male character had a name, and every female character was woman one, <laughs> woman two, oh. or the wife, or, oh. right, like the <laughs> the daughter, the mother. Read an obituary, everybody. I mean, look and see what people list the women as, right? And so... What was the challenge of these roles and what were the roles that you discovered you were playing that you weren't even aware you were playing throughout writing this book?
3: Yeah, I mean, oh my gosh, so much. Like I I I write about this in the book, but just like realizing yeah. at a certain point that my life looked remarkably like my own mother's mm-hmm. even though we our experiences leading into marriage and motherhood were very different. And I've been thinking a lot about the sort of like inherited roles, right? So if I'm a Gen Xer, Mm -hmm. but if I'm parenting, if I'm a Gen X kid of boomer parents and my model for parenting was boomer parenting, I'm a Gen X person in many ways parenting like a boomer which is yeah. to say the way that I mother is the way that my mother did and she was a stay at home mom when I was a kid. Yeah. And I you know I published my first book before I even got married let alone have kids. So yeah. I I think there's there's something to the the way that we parent being either in conversation with or modeled after or sometimes even pushing against the way that we were parented and the mold doesn't always fit. And I, I came to sort of that realization. And then of course thought, well, and also what am I modeling to my kids?
0: Yeah, you explore some, I mean, some of the questions you ask about if I don't want to be seen as mother you know, what message does that send my children? Right. I mean, it's it's a double-edged sword. Yeah. If I tell them the most important thing to me is not mothering, (laughs) right? But there's a difference between the act of being a good parent and caring for your children and, you know, supporting them and the concept of role or how you identify in the world. And, And that's a... Very tricky, tricky line to try and you know uh, balance on. Well, and it's gendered. It's completely gendered. Oh, it's gendered. so gendered.
3: I don't yeah. meet any, I have don't think I have ever met a man who introduced <laughs> them first as child named father. one and child named two father. Yeah, like what do you do? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love my children. Oh, and also I'm a doctor yeah. or I work in, yes. I'm work. i an insurance agent. No, but I, I do find that, you know, a lot, of, a lot of women will sort of kind of double down on their parenting role more than even their professional role. And I know I did yeah. that for years. And frankly, I spend more time actively parenting than I do sure. writing.
0: So, well, uh, yeah, but there's no, uh, I think so many of us do. And it's that dismissal mm. of whatever significance or importance there is to that. It's like you only have the one choice versus. Being able to be respected and empowered by both. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You talk about, you talk about, like, you and your former husband were both writers before you had kids. And yet, somehow, and not somehow, we, a lot of times we set these up for ourselves, you became the primary caregiver and you talked about. Getting to, uh, when you traveled for work, you have this line about, on the other hand, when I would call home from a trip, I remember feeling like I was in trouble. I'd made his life more difficult, and I might pay for that with the silent treatment or cold reception when I returned home. I didn't feel missed as a person. I felt missed as a staff, and I was like, good boy, that is so depressing but also so <laughs> accurate right yeah. like this idea of being staff and uh, and i think that is so true in so many partnered relationships finding that balance and i i know part of writing this was to sort of explore the how did how did I get here how Mm -hmm. did I you know I wasn't going to be doing this how did I get here coming out on the other side of this where are you now and do you define yourself by any specific roles now or are you just like fuck that
3: (laughs) (laughs) no I mean I'm still I'm still the primary caregiver. My kids live with me. Yeah. I'm a single mom. Like, it's it's a yeah. huge, you know, it's it's like not in my Twitter bio, but it's as much a part of who I am, if not more, as everything else I am. I, I mother more than I write. I mother more than I edit. I mother more than I teach. I mother more than I shower or clean. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this house, oh, yeah. which is a mirage behind yeah. you. Um, right. <laughs> So no, it's still, it's still a big thing. I think, you know, the, the biggest difference between the sort of like before and after is that in the before times, my labor, my invisible labor in the house Mm -hmm. was, felt very invisible in the house. And it became visible when I left, right? You really notice what someone does when they're not there doing it. I mean, sometimes it seems like the miraculous thing that the laundry gets done and somehow everyone's eating and the doctor appointments are made and, and the mail comes in and the house is clean and it, it it all seems like it just happens, but it doesn't just happen. Someone does it. And sometimes you don't realize who's doing it until the person is like off giving a poetry reading at a university in another state and everything isn't done by the birds and Cinderella. I mean, it, you know, yeah.
0: um, God, I wish they were. I, if God, if just, only that would be so I, nice. I would
3: really like the birds to. I would
0: too. To fix me up a dress for book tour. That's right. I always just imagine all the <laughs> shit on the floor, right? Like these birds <laughs> and rats, like making stuff, You're like, and I'm the just smells like terrible. Like Cinderella, has come on. There got to be. We have a bag of birdseed break on the porch, and it's been a <laughs> field day for the birds. But then, like, I was out cleaning up, and I was like, ooh, oh, no, that was bad. left out of the Disney movie that's yeah. not good and anyway, we just sorry. watched that yeah.
3: recently actually and my daughter was like
0: oh. she's outside
3: doing stuff why doesn't she just leave like she's actually yes. not being held captive why doesn't she just <laughs> leave and i'm like amen thank you i you yeah, know exactly th- these were yeah, different see, times. you're doing a good
0: job you're doing <laughs> a good job parenting, <laughs> all, parenting win yeah sometimes it's a very small <laughs> checklist that we're trying to achieve the bar is low
3: very so low no, very low it's on the ground So I will Mm -hmm. say now, like my, my kids recognize what I do. Like they recognize who's doing the laundry and they recognize who's cooking their meals and they know who's at the school carnival and they know who's doing the homework with them. And, and it doesn't feel invisible and they actually do seem, they do seem to get it and not in a way where, I mean, I don't, I don't believe in sort of making kids feel like you're doing them a favor by doing things that you should be doing. So I don't do any of that, like, who does your laundry? I really, yeah. like, they get to be kids and live here rent-free without yeah. guilt and just be cared for because they're kids. And there's plenty of time for them to grow up and be responsible for themselves and others. And now is not that time. And there will be no, you know, shame or guilt or or putting on them any right. of that responsibility. But. Having said that, they get it. There's a reason why my Mother's Day cards say, like, thanks for keeping us alive and feeding us. And thanks for doing all the things. It's like, I didn't pay
0: them to write that. (laughs) I also feel like I think (laughs) I also the only time I throw the guilt card is like when my child's about to open the bag. Of salt vinegar potato chips, and I'm like, "Let me have some." And they're like, "I paid for those." I don't have the first. I was like, "I'll pay for
2: those. You bring them here." (laughs) But I
0: do a voice, so it's okay. But you touch on something that is invisible until the time comes, and that is when children are very little. It is like in there, guys. Remember, science, not science, not a person who knows real things. Just saying. things like their facts. It's inherent (laughs) that they don't see that they are selfish, that they don't see. And when you're in it, you want them to see so bad, you know, and then as they get older, there comes a moment where hopefully they see, but they are more capable of seeing. And I I think there's some real, it's really hard when you're in it to distance yourself or be aware that that one day might (laughs)
3: Mm.
0: you might get to the other side of it all right I'm gonna I literally have a bazillion more questions but I'm going to wrap up on the title so the title of the book you could make this place beautiful is uh, the last line of your poem Good Bones, which came out in two thousand sixteen, and or you you put out in the world, and or it got really recognized in two thousand sixteen, and really brought you a lot of attention. And I'm going to, without reading the poem, I'm just going to try and do a horrible job summing it up. But it's basically for for me, for me, it was asking this question about. Protecting your children from or keeping from your children the fact that the world might not be that great that it's a terrible place and at the end of the poem you compare it to being a like a house and a realtor right like even a realtor will take you through a shithole of a house and use the phrase good bones right like but it can be saved our world. Has good bones, right? And the last line is, "This place could be beautiful, right? You could make this place beautiful." What is the significance of using that last line as the title of this new book?
3: Yeah, I like that it's kind of a call to
0: action. Yeah, although
3: although in yeah. it, I'm also I'm also talking mostly to myself, which is you can, you you can do this. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you know, yes. I have a really—I've uh, had like a complicated relationship with that poem. Like it—it it brought mm. a, me a much wider readership and made things possible for me in my writing life that weren't possible before. But it's also sort of a disaster barometer in that every time something mm. bad happens, it's shared. Widely and I'm tagged and tagged and tagged, and so it's it's a weird thing, you know. It's like the bat signal. Think about that. Yeah, and so it's it's a it's a I have to be kind of ambivalent about it because when your sort of like quote unquote success is actually Mm -hmm. linked in a really direct way to like public tragedy, because that's when people share the poem. It's hard to just feel good about people sharing your work if they're sharing it because of things that are happening that are scary and bad. Yeah. And so, in some ways, like reclaiming part of that poem for this book was a way of being like, No, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna sort of maybe someone will come across Good Bones, the poem, because of the title of this book and not yeah. because of a yet another school shooting. Yeah, you know, oh, and yet another concert bombing. Yeah, I mean, yet another dot 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 forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Um, yeah, and so that's that was part of it. That was part of it for me is really. Um, I like that it was a verb phrase, and it was about doing something positive, positive. and I like that it gave me a chance to kind of take back something that I felt complicated feelings about.
0: Yeah. Well, I. I just want you to know I find the poem Good Bones deeply beautiful, and I find it intimate. And um, I think living in a time where things can be hashtagged and tagged and is a disservice to what I feel the poem touches on, which is this conflict uh, when you care for a child, how to navigate what you know as an adult versus what you're not quite ready for them to know Mm -hmm. unless it's very open, body positivity, uh, sex talks, you know, like understanding LGBTQ, I mean, like those aren't the scary things, guys. Nope. those are and the And I'm normal with you on that are... all that.
3: I am with you on all that. Those are
0: conversations yeah. I'm
3: happy to have.
0: Yes. Happy to have those conversations. Yes. Okay. Last, last question. And that is just at one point in time, the book and, and your journey through all this, it, you found it hard and i mean this was sort of like i felt like an employee or staff member who was missing and and is my work as a poet like and especially in a career that is in the arts that is creative that i mean you're already a woman sorry there's very it's very little value there and whatever you want to call yourself but how comfortable are you now calling yourself a poet and you better answer that you're very comfortable, very fucking comfortable. <laughs> um, Good
3: job. Yeah, I'm not I'm not uncomfortable yeah. about that at all. Yeah, I don't go I don't ahead. have to go into a phone booth and and change from my mom self into yeah. my poet self. And that is one thing I will say about writing this memoir. It was a painful writing experience because it was so deeply contextualizing, um, but it was also yeah. integrating. And really, it's like, yeah. I feel like I came out of this process just just feeling like I am one whole person, and all of these things what? I get to be all the time without apology, and that that was like worth the entire, you know, year plus of of heading into the trenches of this office and spending time with, you know, some really joyful material, but some also really painful material. Yeah, I'm
0: I'm a poet. I'm not the dame. Good job. I'm the poet. You're that's right. <laughs> you are the poet. you are a self. Thank you, Maggie for coming on and talking to us and also thank you for this book because it, it while it is your journey into balancing and embracing all those things that you are, it is a really helpful thing to read as a person who is always trying to find that balance too. So thank you for putting this in the world. We will make sure that we link every, everybody knows how to find books, but (laughs) we're tired. So I'm going to, we're going to link it. We're going to link to where you can get that. You know me, get one for you, one for your library, one for a group, you know, somewhere that wants to read it. Send it to, like, a governor in Florida or something. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) And we're going to link you up to where you can find out more about Maggie and all of their poetry, which is really excellent. And uh, it's just very accessible and very... And accessible is the wrong word. That almost seems insulting to poets everywhere. It is very (laughs) relevant and, and... you are right Maggie you leave it in a state that allows us as a reader to explore it. Thank you Maggie so much for joining us. No thank you this has been this has been great.
3: I'm Lisa Hannawalt And I'm Emily Heller. Wow, Emily, we've been doing this podcast for 10 years. I know, but hey, don't worry. You can jump in at literally any episode and hear us talk about
1: some of our favorite stuff. Caterpillars becoming butterflies. Martha Stewart flying around in a
3: private jet full of trees. Yes, you heard me right. Trees, neighbors becoming enemies. Just kidding. (laughs) Whatever messed up stuff we can find on Wikipedia. Our impeccable
1: taste in everything from dogs to TV shows to bodily functions. And horses. Lots and lots
3: of horses. Come for our horned up rants about the world. Stay for the catchy theme songs. You might not learn anything, but we're a good hang. Baby Geniuses. Every other week on MaximumFun.org. Baby Geniuses
1: tell us something we don't know.
0: wow oh my god oh my god i saw what you did oh my god i'm paying attention wow you mom are a genius oh my god that's fucking genius all right stefan signed me up for pottery classes for my birthday and they didn't start till march and i think i mentioned that there were definitely like Maybe I'm not going to be able to take pottery classes, selfish asshole that I am. Maybe I'm not, you know, but instead, after coming to a place of just this is an unpredictable situation I am in, I have been going and I have been making horrible things. And it has been a wonderful way to channel some physical, like pent up energy Uh, That, I mean, I will just smash clay to pieces without a pot being the outcome. So, anyway, I just am very proud of myself for showing up to that class. By the way, it's just a block away. And I've also been walking because I have really let most forms of my self-care needs go. So, a little walking bonus is also something that brings me joy. Hey,
1: Biz. This is a genius my kiddo recently had to take antibiotics and they had to take some <laughs> weird version that you have to give four times a day Ugh. for 7 days and it was intense and annoying but the genius is every time i gave it to them in that little syringy squirty thing oh i know it. Rinse it out and i had a rubber band around the antibiotics in the fridge and then i just put The thing in the rubber bands was ready for the next dose, and it wasn't all sticky and disgusting on my counter. So, gamey, honk, I'm doing it. (laughs) Have a great day. Thanks for the hotline. Bye.
0: Honk, honk, honk. You are doing I think just saying honk, I'm doing it brings us all joy. This is actually very genius. I am knee-deep in liquid syringe dispensers in caring for my mom. I mean, they are everywhere and they do get sticky and they do, they are easy to misplace. Or you think, oh, I'm just getting, oh, I'm putting it down here next to the bed and, or I'm putting it here on the kitchen counter and putting it with a rubber band on the medicine is genius. Failures.
1: Fail, fail, fail.
0: Last week, I reported spring break, (laughs) which is really enough, but that we had dyed Ellis's hair and that we had just let it sit. And then we washed it and like all the screen came out. And then we just let it sit another week because we don't clean Ellis and Ellis doesn't clean themselves very well. Just not a priority. And so uh, school returned today thank you, Jesus. So we had to hose them down <laughs> last night. And once again, when they started lathering up, just green, rolling, and like there's still so much green that like even after their face is clean, like after like a day, there's imprint stains like on the neck and the fa- whatever. And guess what, guys? Whatever. It's just that green continues to lurk about my house in places I don't want green. It's not easy being green.
2: Hi, Biz. I'm calling with a fail. I'm currently sitting in a parking lot of a gas station waiting for my husband to come with some very important papers I left at home. It's coming up on the end of tax season. And, of course, it's about a week away and we decided we should get our taxes done which uh, my father's a CPA, so he does those for us. So after working 10 of the last 11 days, I decided Oof. what I should do to get our taxes done is take my 13-month-old on a road trip by myself to visit <laughs> my parents, who live two hours away. Uh-huh. And last night, my husband kept asking, like, what time are you leaving? When are you going tomorrow? And I said, I don't know. I'd like to leave in the morning, but we'll make it out. When we make it out, I really don't care. We're just setting this bar low. Like, it's just me and the little one. So, let's set the bar, Will, for this journey. So, of course, on the way, turn on One Dead Mother to listen and um, get to the fail section of the podcast. So, it's about an hour away. And I'm thinking, fail. Oh, what's my fail going to be of this trip? Is it just a trip? Probably. But we'll see. And then I start thinking, taxes. Yeah. Yep. I didn't bring a single paper along oh. the whole packet we put together last night didn't bring it. I don't have it. No. <laughs> so well, called my partner immediately and he's being very generous and taking some time off work and we're meeting halfway. So we'll get this done. But just not as smoothly as hoped. You're doing a great job and so am I. Bye.
0: You are doing a good job. You are Doing a good, oh no, you're not. You tried to. <laughs> like, this is one of those things where you tell somebody, usually like a relative, and then they look at you like you have lost it and that you're probably not okay, right? But like you know that you're okay enough. And so you don't really want to share. Oh, and now you're just sitting for an hour at the gas station because it's an hour for your partner to come and bring you. The documents, and yeah, this this is a shit show. What is the real fail, forgetting the documents or thinking that a two-hour road trip with a very young child, really, until they're like 16?
3: <laughs> you are the greatest mom I've ever known. I love you, I love you.
2: When I have a problem, I call you on the phone. I love you, I love you.
0: All right, everybody, let's listen to possibly the shortest mom having a breakdown.
1: Hi, Biz, and I hope Teresa is <laughs> around a little more. It's really nice to hear her voice too, Biz. Oh, I pray your mom is doing well. I don't know where this fits, but I did not marry an asshole. I did not marry an asshole. I did not marry an asshole. I'm pretty sure. No, I did not marry an asshole. Okay, thanks. You guys are doing an awesome job.
0: You are doing an awesome job, too. And do you know what this falls under? This, this space, the space that we've created. I, I did not marry an asshole. Sometimes that's just like, we don't need all the details. You almost don't need all the details to relive it. You just need to remind yourself out loud that you're in possibly a stressful time with your partner. And I do think that that reminder, I did not marry an asshole is such a helpful one. It's a good mantra. It, I, I do want to say this, though. It doesn't mean that whatever feelings you're feeling aren't valid, right? It doesn't mean that, you know, everything is on you to solve or fix or to, like, okay away or, you know, just by saying I didn't marry an asshole doesn't mean it absolves a partnership of work. And I, I mean, obviously, I think we probably all know that. I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe sometimes we just need to stand around and yell, I didn't marry an asshole. And sometimes it's good just to yell, I am not an asshole. I am not an asshole. My partner didn't marry an asshole. But look, having kids in your house or not having kids in your house, partnered relationships are still work. And It's hard. It's hard. But you are doing a very good job, recognizing that it's hard. That is not an easy thing to do. So I just want you to know that I see you. I see you having the need to say that out loud. I too miss Teresa. I hope we get a little more of her this year too. Thank you for thinking of my mom. The bottom line here is you are doing a very good job. I see you and you are absolutely not alone. Everybody, wow, what a show full of reminders of what OBM can teach us. From shitting in the tub to not marrying an asshole. (laughs) But I do think like I, you know here's the thing that and I I, I too learn from the show and for me it's just the language I choose to use the reminder that everybody's having a different experience and yet similar experiences it just helps me navigate the world a little better it definitely helps me navigate kids in my house better. And that's really where we're all at, right? There's a bunch of kids in our house. Even one kid is a bunch of kids. (laughs) Or maybe you don't have kids in your house, but you are an aunt or a grandparent or an uncle or a nanny or a teacher. If you're a teacher, you have too many kids in your house right now. I see you. Everybody, you're all doing a good job. You really are. (laughs) I just, you know, we're at the yelling stage now. We're back to this just moaning and making noises. We just had spring break and Stefan compared it to like the first week of, you know, the lockdown for COVID, right? Like we all still were working. (laughs) These kids were loose and not happy about it. So that's happening in all of your houses. And I see you. And you are absolutely... Not alone. I will talk to you next week. Bye.
1: I got to slow down Mama Blues. I got to
2: slow down Mama Blues. Gotta slow down Mama Blue. Low down Mama Gotta slow down Mama Blue.
0: We'd like to thank Max Bunn, our producer, Gabe Mara, my husband, Stephen Lawrence, our perfect children who provide us with inspiration to say all these horrible things. And of course, you, our listeners. To find out more about the songs you heard on today's podcast and more about the show, please go to MaximumFun.org slash OneBadMother. For information about live shows, our book, and press, please check out OneBadMotherPodcast.com. One Bad Mother is a member of the Maximum Fun family of podcasts. To support
3: the show, go to MaximumFun.org slash join